It had been a long day, and my little granddaughter had been a real trooper. 16,645 steps on my watch, most of which, by the way, was spent chasing her because, well, she wanted to be chased. And she kept turning around and giving me that little smile that said she knew exactly what she was doing. She was playing games with Grandpa. It was 5.30 p.m., and she was running on empty. This time, instead of running away, she just sat down. And she started crying for no apparent reason, except she was done. I picked her up. She tried to pull away and cried louder. She was done with everything, including Grandpa. I just held her. I told her how proud I was of her, how she had been so good all day. But uh, she just tried to push away. But then she gave up. She just nestled into my shoulder. And she let me carry her for about 10 minutes. And then her little head popped up and she said, down, down. And we started the game all over again. Whenever things are tough and I need a smile, I go to Facebook. I skip 90% of the stuff that's there and I jump to Stevie the Wonder Dog. Stevie is a yellow lab with a nerve condition that causes his entire body to wiggle. And because he's a lab, he's always got this wonderful, silly grin on his face. By the way, if Stevie can't make you smile, you probably need to check to make sure your heart is still beating. Elijah says, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. God says, no, you're not done yet. You've still got a lot more to do. And since Stevie the Wonder Dog wasn't around, God told Elijah to eat and sleep and then to wash, rinse, and repeat until he was ready to get back to work. Leslie Newbegin was a pastor, missionary, and professor. He was also somebody who could really make the Bible something you could understand. Listen to these words from one of his lectures. It is an action of God, the triune God, of God the Father, who is ceaselessly at work in all creation and in the hearts and minds of all human beings, whether they acknowledge Him or not, graciously guiding history toward its true end. Of God the Son, who has become part of this created history and the Incarnation, and of God the Holy Spirit, who is given as a foretaste of the end to empower and to teach the Church and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Before we think about our role, the role of our words and deeds in mission, we need to have firmly in the center of our thinking this action of God. So how are you doing mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually? And be honest. Be honest with yourself. And by the way, when you're ready and it's a necessary step, be honest with someone else as well. Our psalm starts unlike any other psalm. Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and David departed. Let me read to you the entire section from 1 Samuel 21, which is where this takes place. David fled that day from Saul's murderous rage and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish, Achish's servants said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. And so he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? 
Is this one going to come into my house? So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. By the way, in case you notice that the psalm calls him Abimelech and 1 Samuel says Achish, Abimelech is his kingly title, Achish is his real name. Now the story is straightforward. King Saul said he would kill David on sight. So David runs to Achish, hoping to find safety. But he realizes too late that Achish is threatened by his reputation about him being so great that the people are singing about him. And so he's also most likely going to kill David. And so David pretends to be insane. And by the way, seeing the great David scribbling on walls and drooling on himself, Achish turns to his court and says, Do I have such a shortage of crazy people in my kingdom that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one actually going to move into my house? And that's when they send David away. Why are we so afraid of those who are suffering from mental health challenges? Why are we so afraid to admit that we're going through one ourselves? Is it because of the stigma that surrounds mental illness? Or is it because the mental health line is a lot thinner than we like? And we know that it actually doesn't take much to either step over it or fall over it. And that scares us. It took me a long time to realize being adopted as a child of God through baptism is not about puppy dogs and ice cream and all good things, nor is it about playing everything safe. Life isn't safe. It can't be. Name one person in the Bible whose life was safe. Not even Jesus. I mean, every other chapter in the Gospels is about somebody who's after Jesus because they're tired of him being so perfect. We are not safe. We never have been safe. But we are redeemed, which is more than enough. It's more than enough until God takes us home, where we will always be safe. A few weeks ago, I was honored to ordain a new pastor here on the island. I told a story about taking a really chewed up plastic bottle, compliments of one of our service dog trainees, to the recycling center. The attendant rejected it. He said, it is too far gone for me to accept. But I wasn't willing to give up. And so the next time I went back, I took this very chewed up bottle. It was a different attendant. He had no problem taking it. You see, that's just like God's grace. No matter how far gone, no matter how chewed up, God isn't going to give up on you. You see, the rest of the world is going to give up on you, but God won't. Because that's the God that we worship. What people want most is to be safe. Now, you know my view on this. We cannot be safe. We can only be safer. And this saferness comes when we, the community of faith, accept one another, love one another, encourage one another in spite of all of our differences. Some of us are pretty chewed up, but God isn't going to give up on us. And he sends us out into the world as examples of his grace so that others will know not to give up as well. Elijah was at the end of his rope. He was ready to give up. He told God there was no hope. God knew better. God said, eat and sleep, wash, rinse, repeat until you're ready to get back to work. And then God just held him until Elijah finally understood. It's called pandemic brain, and it's different for everybody. But some of the common symptoms are anxiety, distraction, disengaging from things that you normally enjoy, being tired even though you're sleeping more than you usually do, worrying about things that you never worried about before. When it comes to anxiety, our culture is like a giant gerbil wheel that gets us feeling anxious about our anxiety and just keeps repeating it in a never-ending cycle. But you know what? Anxiety, like fear, is normal. At least a certain amount of it is. God designed a part of our brain to react first and then to think later. It's called the limbic system, and its job is to keep us alive. 
Most people call it emotions, but it's actually a lot more than that. See, whenever we are in danger or we're somewhere that we've never been before, it heightens our senses. It creates a response to protect us while the rest of us is trying to figure it out. It's why when we see something or experience something and it's new to us, we're liable to jump or scream or cry. See, it's saying this might be dangerous. And, and while you figure it out, it might be the better part of valor to run the other direction. Now, the part a lot of people miss is whenever you are kept at a high stress, high anxiety, highly emotional level, it takes a huge toll on your body, your mind, and your soul. After the initial response, you're supposed to let the rest of the brain take over to process and figure things out. But sometimes you remain in a state of fear or anxiety long after we should and long after we need to. Anxiety and fear fool us into thinking that we're thinking when really we're not thinking at all. We're just reacting. It's that whole gerbil wheel thing. We also tend to attach our fear and anxiety to something or someone. Might be food, might be sleep, might be spending money, might be running away. By the way, when I say that we attach, this is when we do those things not because we need to, but because they become our extreme, okay? You know what your go-to is. You know when you are confronted with something, you know where you run, which really isn't helping you at all. Somehow you think it's making you feel better, but the truth is, it's not helping you deal with whatever you need to deal with. See, the only question is whether these things are helping or hurting. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments, the people got nervous because he stayed up there so long. They were in the wilderness, surrounded by enemies. They only had the food and water that God provided. They were lost. They were afraid. They were anxious. Moses' brother Aaron, who was supposed to be their pastor, he also panicked, got all anxious. And he took up an offering of gold and he fashioned a calf out of it so that the people could see their God and worship it rather than just deal with the thunder and the lightning up on top of the mountain. Now, before we say that sounds really stupid, making a calf out of gold and say, behold, your God. How could they possibly think a golden calf could solve all their problems and keep them safe? Think about all of the political and economical golden calves that we have fashioned in the last year and a half so that we feel better. Many of them were nothing more than distractions. They didn't do anything to help us. They just distracted us for a little bit. You know, when God spoke to Elijah, he didn't say, you know, you're overreacting, you're fine. In fact, everything is fine. Puppy dogs and ice cream, fine. So live without any fear because everything is hunky-dory. No, instead, God said, life's tough, but you're doing great. I'm proud of you. You need food and rest until you're in a place where you can get back to the work that I've prepared for you. That whole Ephesians 2.10 thing. As believers, we are not called to live a safe life. We are called to live in a life of holy tension. We are caught between the pain, evil, hate, and darkness of this world and the light and life of the world to come. If we live out our faith, there are going to be times when we are totally and completely exhausted, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, as well as physically. There will also be times when we can't see a way out because there actually isn't one. I mentioned we often tie our anxiety to something or someone in an effort to deflect what we're experiencing. It's our way of creating a safe space, a place where we feel normal, even though nothing is normal. Why do you think tourists are filling up Waikiki? Why are restaurants overflowing? 
Why are people afraid to return to work or school? And yet, some of them are willing to spend their time at the mall or youth sporting events or take a trip to Vegas. See, all of us process our fears and anxieties differently. And while our actions make no sense to anybody else, they make perfect sense to us. That's because we're on that limbic thing rather than letting the rest of us figure stuff out. The pandemic isn't the only thing that seeks to rob us of our life by creating such fear and anxiety that, like Elijah, we just want to lay down and die. COVID just happens to be the one thing that right now we have all in common. You know, the church hasn't always been good at responding to mental health challenges. For much of its history, instead of eat and sleep and find somebody to talk to and just, just let me hold on to you for a little bit, it was often, you know what, you just need more faith. I wish it really was that simple, just to tell people to pray more, read the Bible more, worship more, that everything would suddenly be okay. Here's a problem with that. Do any of us really want to tell Moses, King David, Elijah, St. Paul, and a dozen other of the heroes of the faith that they did not have enough faith, that they just needed to read the Bible more and pray more and trust God more? See, all of them came to a point where they said, I'm done. But God knew better. And he just held them until they understood. Jesus frees us to be honest about our fragile anxieties, to speak the truth about our failures, to realize we tend to tie our fears to food or work or vacations or sleep, even though all those things are doing or putting off the inevitable. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, those aren't the words from our gospel lesson today, but they're just as valid. Today, Jesus says, feast on me. Draw your life from me. I will not cast you out. I've come. It's the will of the Father. And on the last day, I'm going to raise you up. Here's where the gospel leads us to the hope we have in Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter what is creating anxiety or fear in our lives. Might be pandemic brain. Might be a health issue, pain, anger, loss. Just being overwhelmed. I'll let you fill in the blank. It's called Good Friday. And it's where we live much of our life. It's in the shadow of death and pain and evil. I mean, the rest of our lives, much of that is spent living in Holy Saturday. Oh, no longer the darkness or the cries of death, but also not the brilliance and joy of Easter Sunday. This is that holy tension that I talked about, the one that much of our life is made up of. See, what Jesus is offering is the ability to see beyond any rulers or officials or self-important people who are serving themselves instead of you, for you to see beyond any crosses that you must bear to see beyond any tombs that might try to hold on to you, to see past any pain and hurt and loss that causes you to cry out and just lay down and say, I'm done. Because this world is so badly broken, we might say with Elijah, I'm finished. But we have a God who reaches out and holds us, who tells us that he is proud of us, who understands we're tired and he understands why we are tired. He doesn't let go even when we're pushing against him and crying. And as he holds us, we remember a hill our parents, maybe our grandparents, or maybe our Sunday school teacher told us about. A hill where a man was nailed to a cross, not because he was evil, but because the world was evil. And as the darkness closed in on him, he entrusted his soul to his heavenly Father. Instead of crying out, I am finished, he said, it is finished. And after we've rested in God's arms for a while, we find the courage to pray that prayer, knowing that the it that is finished is anything and everything that would try to keep us from our Savior and from the arms of the one we know who loves us. 
We are sinful, imperfect, and often infatuated with ourselves. We hold on to things we shouldn't hold on to, and we let go of things that are eternally important. We give up too soon, and we forget. Boy, do we forget. But we have a God who doesn't let go, who doesn't give up, who offers us the chance to hold on to Him while He holds on to us. Now, we know this, no matter what this is, is not the end. It cannot be the end, no matter what this is. We might be tired, overwhelmed, running a million miles an hour on a gerbil wheel. But this is still not the end, because after Good Friday and Holy Saturday comes Easter Sunday. There is always an Easter Sunday. For us, Easter means we can boldly live a life of faith. For as St. Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But on those days when we lose sight of the cross and the empty tomb, when we just lay down and start crying, God doesn't give up on us. He picks us up and whispers in our ear that He is so proud of us. And He loves us with an everlasting love, no matter how chewed up we may be. Frederick Buechner said, The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things are going to happen to you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever, ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. Enjoy it. Eventually, Elijah went back to work. He was one of the greatest examples of God's grace for this world. And when the time came for Elijah to retire, God sent a fiery chariot to bring him home to heaven. Now, we may not get the fiery chariot, but I guarantee that God has something really special for you when that day comes because you are his unique and unreproducible miracle, and that is something that's never going to change. Until then, get out there and be an example of God's grace. Be safer. Thrive in that holy tension. And when you need to, rest in God's arms. Let him hold you, love you, tell him how proud he is of you until you're ready to get back out there again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.